As I said on Monday night, I'm you know teaching on the cross, trying to explain that that's talking about what Jesus did for us and that He didn't do a partial deal. He paid the full price. And that when Paul referred to the cross, he was referring to the complete atonement of Jesus, that it stands alone, that we can't add to it. All we can do is subtract from it. I've used a number of scriptures that talk about how you can make the cross of none effect through our unbelief, but not only unbelief, through our trying to establish our own righteousness and trying to stand before God in our own goodness. That negates what Jesus has done. So that's what we've been talking about. And of course, the, I preach on the grace of God nearly all the time because that's what changed my life. And I emphasize the grace of God. But you know what? There is a justice, a holiness, an awe to God. And I think that sometimes people miss this. And I've become aware that there are people today that are preaching uh, what I've heard called universalism, or ultimate reconciliation, that you know people are just going to somehow or another automatically be reconciled to God. There's a lot of people that don't believe that there's a hell. They believe that, you know, you just live in hell here on the earth, but if you don't know the Lord, well, then you just cease to exist. And there's all kinds of variations of this. And I tell you, that just totally compromises what Jesus came to do because it's in understanding what we've been redeemed from that really makes us love the Lord. Look at this verse in Luke chapter 7. And in verse uh, 47, I, this is breaking right into the midst of a thing, but um, this is where Jesus was in a Pharisee's home and the woman came and wiped his, or she cried over his feet and wiped his feet with her, her hair and displayed this lavish love upon Jesus. And the Pharisee said if he was really a prophet... He had known what kind of woman this is. And I tell you, Jesus, God is just so awesome. Not only did he know what kind of woman this was, but he knew what this Pharisee was thinking and read his mail. That was awesome. And anyway, the part I wanted to bring out, he said in verse 47, uh, he says, Wherefore I say unto you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And this is a principle that was used also in Matthew chapter 18 when he talked about the man that was forgiven this huge debt, like a $10 million debt, and then he went out and began to beat and put a person in prison who owed him a relatively insignificant amount. And he says, how could you do this? Don't you realize what you were saved from? The same thing is said over in... Uh, it's either First or Second Peter where it says that a person that lacks these things has forgotten that they were purged from their old sins and that leads them into sin. And I believe that understanding what we have been forgiven of is absolutely essential for us to love much. And today there's not a lot of teaching on this. And you know what? Many people think that by me preach, I'm going to preach on hell tonight and talk about what we're redeemed from. And by me preaching on this, there's a lot of people who are grace people who think, well, this is countering what you teach. It isn't countering it at all. It is, man, it makes me more thankful 
You know, I've used this expression before, but I haven't gone out and committed the sins that many people have committed. And so some people think, well, you weren't forgiven as much as I was. But there isn't a hell number two or a hell number three. You know what? If you miss heaven, you go to hell, and I have been forgiven of a lot. And it may not be relative to somebody else. I may not have done the same things, but I really believe, and I don't have any way to prove this. It's just an opinion of mine that I have seen my sin and my unworthiness and my, uh, what it would have been like without Jesus in my life more than most people have. And therefore, I love the Lord and appreciate what God has done in my life more than many, many people that I deal with who maybe have committed greater sins, but they don't have the same revelation of what we've been forgiven of. So tonight what I want to try and do is to portray what we've been forgiven of, and this fits perfectly with grace. Because, praise God, I'm not going to experience hell. I've been forgiven of it. But I know what was headed down the road. I know what the justification or the destination that I was headed to was. And it makes me love God even more, and it makes me more appreciative of the grace of God. You know, if you don't understand how bad the transgression is then you won't fully appreciate the grace and the atonement that was shed. The, the payment that was made for you. It's like if somebody, you know, uh, violated uh, and got a speeding ticket for $50 or something like that. That would be one thing for a person to come up and say, here, let me take care of it. But what if your sentence was death? What if you had done something and you were going to be put to death? And I mean, you were facing a death penalty and somebody says, here, let me pay this. I guarantee you, you would have a totally different reaction than somebody that just paid your speeding ticket or paid your parking ticket. We've got to understand how bad the situation was to fully appreciate what Jesus did and what He paid for us. And again, let me just say this, that, you know, I was born again when I was 10 years, I mean, 8 years old, but 10 years later when I was 18 is when God just revealed himself to me and it was because I had become a religious Pharisee. I was living holier than anybody I knew. And I don't say that in pride. I'm just saying I lived holier than anybody I knew. When I was 13, 14 years old, I was leading three and four people a week to the Lord. I was doing things and I was an introvert. And I mean, it was at a great effort for me to get out and talk to people. But I, I was doing all of the right things and living holy, but I was trusting in my holiness and really feeling good about how holy I was. And God had to bring me out of that deception. And so in this prayer meeting, March the 23rd, 1968, about 10.30 at night, God just pulled back a curtain and showed me how holy he was. And I don't have the words to describe this, but I saw the glory of God. I saw the goodness of God, the holiness of God. And in comparison, God showed me that all of my righteousness was like filthy rags. And again, you may think, well, you were a pretty good person, but you stack yourself up against God and I guarantee you, Every one of us will just be on our face saying, Oh God, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Have mercy on me. And I saw my unworthiness. And at that time, I, had, I didn't know very much doctrine. And I expected God to kill me. I thought that when... I just saw how completely unholy I was compared to what God meant. Not just in actions, but in motives. 
in my attitude, in my heart. And I expected God to kill me. I really did. You know, Martha Derringer over here, her brother was with me that night in that meeting. And I guarantee you, it changed my life. It changed everybody's life. It was awesome. We got caught up in the presence of God. And I expected God to kill me because I recognized the holiness of God. And I just intuitively knew that that holiness is what He created me to be and I had sinned and come short of it. And I expected the wrath of God to fall upon me. I don't believe that God revealed those things to me to punish me, but He revealed it to get me out of my self-righteousness. And I spent an hour and a half, two hours just repenting of everything I could think of, things I hadn't even done yet, things that I'd thought of doing, uh, things that I didn't do but I had lusted for it. And I turned myself inside out and in front of my friends, in front of the leaders of the church, I ruined whatever reputation I had, but I just repented of everything. And did you know I have never, some of you may not understand what I'm about to say, but I've never had to repent or recommit or rededicate myself to God since then. Some of you may think, well, what are you saying? You've been sinless? No. But I'm saying that I gave everything I had to God. I gave without reservation and I've fallen and come short of it a million times. But my commitment and my desire has never changed. I'm not able to fulfill it And when I mess up, I just say, Father, I'm sorry, but you know, man, I want to serve you more than anything else. And I I just don't know how to explain it, but I gave everything there was. There wasn't anything left. And I've never had to recant that ever. I've had to say, well, I've missed it again many times. But man, it's been my desire. So all of this to say that God showing me my relative unworthiness and showing me His holiness and what justice demanded has totally changed my life. And I preach on the grace of God because right after I did all of this, I was expecting the wrath of God to fall. And instead, I got caught up in the love of God for four and a half months. I was just gone. And I had this love just flowing through me. I read Finney talked about that it was like waves of liquid love flowing over and over and over him. I went through that for four and a half months. Never slept more than an hour at a time. Never sat down and ate a meal. And my point is that that I talk about the goodness of God, but you know what makes me so appreciative? is because I understand what I deserved and what a hypocrite I was and how self-righteous I was. And that's the reason that the love of God has impacted my life so much. And some of the things that I'm hearing today, many people just think that grace is God saying, well, I'm going to look the other way. Or I just decided that I'm not going to impute sin to you anymore. That's not what grace is. Grace was bought at a huge price. God is holy and justice had to be served. Look at this verse in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Rob mentioned this this morning. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture. But it says, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a statement that is carried throughout the entire Bible. 
There is a punishment for sin. Sin has to be judged. Sin causes death. And notice it says the wages, plural, of sin are death. This started way back in Genesis chapter 2, around verse 17 and 18, where God told Adam, He says, In the day you eat of that forbidden fruit, you will surely die. God is life. In Him was life. And God is the one that created us. And He breathed into us life. And He said, If you eat of this fruit, you will die. You know, here's something that I think would help you to understand some things, is don't look at death as being the end, or it's over. What death means, I believe, in Scripture is separation. When you die physically, you don't cease to exist. It's not the end of anything, but it's the separation of your spirit and soul from your body. And when God said, in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die, He was talking about that you will surely be separated from Me. They were in total union, total dependence upon God. And in the day that they decided to exalt themselves to the position of God and make their own decisions and choose their thinking, they separated themselves from God. And that spirit man became separated from God. You know, they didn't die. Adam didn't die until 930 years later. I've heard people interpret that scripture and say that, you know, in the day that you eat of it, you will dying you will surely die and I'm sure that there's a truth to all of that Uh, the dying process began but it began because in the spirit that had been one with the Lord and had been united with the Lord it was separated from that life and the it's just like you know if you have a light or something and if you unplug it from the source it may glow for a while or it may run on batteries but the moment you know it's it's dying It's in the process of dying once you separate it from the power source. God was the power source. God was life. And the moment we chose uh, to rebel, we were separated and we began to die just that moment. And it was inevitable that this physical body would run out of juice because it was separated from the life-giving source, the creative source. And then sickness is a part of death. You know, it says the wages of sin is death. And death comes in more forms than one. I believe that depression is death. There was no depression before we were separated from God. A person who's in union with God wouldn't experience depression. Depression is death. Sickness is death. Poverty is death. Unforgiveness is death. All of these things come as a result of sin. And there's not only this death that that starts and continues through all of these negative things in our life, and then ultimately there is physical death for this body. But over in, um, I think it's uh, Revelation chapter 21. Let me see if I can find this verse. And in verse 13, excuse me, this is Revelation chapter 20. Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. There's not only the first death where we separated ourselves from God, and then you started all of this progression of poverty, 
sickness, disease, depression, stuff ultimately ending in your physical body dying. But then there is a second death, which is when people are judged and they will be cast into the lake of fire and dwell there forever and ever. And that's a second death. So there, there's a lot of consequences of sin. And the point that I'm trying to get across is that God did not just all of a sudden decide, all right, I'm not going to punish sin. All right, I'll just start operating in grace and mercy. And this is what a lot of people think grace is, is God just looking past your sin. That is, that's not even remotely close. God did not just turn the other way or change his mind and say, sin's okay now, it doesn't matter, I'm going to operate in grace. Sin had to be judged. There is a payment, a wage of sin. And it was paid. And it wasn't paid in part. It was paid in full. When God sent Jesus to this earth, Jesus paid for our sins. And according to Isaiah chapter 40, 45, other scriptures, it says, Speak unto Israel that they have received of the Lord's hand double for all of their sins. That has never come to pass in the physical realm. All of the things that the Jews suffered through the Babylonian captivity, through Hitler and everything, that didn't pay for their sins double. What he was doing, if you read it in context, it's a prophecy about the coming Messiah, and it's just saying that Jesus paid much, much more than what our sins deserved. Our sins deserved judgment. And God didn't just look the other way, He paid them. You know, it would be similar to this example that if you, say for instance, had a speeding ticket, you go before the judge and it turns out that the judge is your friend. This judge is a great friend of yours. You'd just be thrilled thinking, praise God, the judge is on my side. The judge is for me. And so you think maybe he's going to let you off or he's going to give you a warning and let it go. But if he's a just judge, and if you're guilty, it would be unjust for him to just let you go. And yet he loves you. So how do you solve this dilemma? He doesn't, he doesn't become unjust. What he does is pronounce the judgment, you know, $150 fine or whatever it is, or a, a month in jail, or if you... You know, if it was drunk driving or whatever the consequences, he pronounces the judgment, brings the gavel down, you're guilty, and you're just shocked like I thought you were my friend. But then he comes around from out behind his desk, takes his robes off, and as a judge, he had to judge you. But then as your friend, he says, you know what, I'll pay your fine. I'll go to jail for you. I'll serve your sentence. See, that's a greater picture of what Jesus did than just to say that He said, oh, I'm going to forgive you because I love you and I don't want to impute sin unto you. Man, sin had a wage to be paid. The Lord said it from the very beginning and it was reinforced many, many different times. It says in Isaiah chapter 59, I believe it is, my arm isn't shortened that it cannot save, nor my ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your sins have separated. Again, that's death. Your sins caused this death. Your sins have separated you from me. The problem is many people quote that verse and apply it to a New Testament believer, which is absolutely wrong because Jesus paid for our sins and therefore we aren't bearing these consequences. And I think one of the reasons there's been a rebellion 
among people who have heard the grace of God at a lot of these things in the Old Testament is because it's been misapplied and applied to us and said that God won't answer your prayers if you got any sin in your life and all this kind of stuff. And that is absolutely not true. The grace of God has changed all this, but it didn't change it by God just declaring that sin is no longer an offense. He paid for it. There was a huge price paid for our salvation. And you know, because... And again, I'm guilty. When the Lord first spoke this to me about, you know, why would people be believing that there is no hell? Why would people be believing in universal salvation and that even the devil is going to somehow or another be reconciled to God? I was just saying, how could this be? And the Lord told me, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And uh, He said, how many times have you preached on hell? And at that time, I had never preached on hell. I'd mentioned it. I believed that it existed, but I'd never preached on it. And he says, how are people going to believe if they aren't told the truth about this? And you can emphasize the grace of God and talk about what God has done for us and glorify that to the point that people don't recognize what we've been saved from. They don't fully appreciate the grace of God because they don't think that the transgression was that big of a deal. And we live in a world today where people are losing their fear of God. You know, let me give you some scriptures about the fear of God. First of all, I wrote down the definition. Here's what the fear, here's what fear means according to the dictionary. It means a feeling of alarm or disquiet caused by awareness or expectation of danger. An intense or man, uh, manifestation of such a feeling. A state of dread, concern, or the fourth definition is awe, reverence, fear of God. Of course, the Bible is talking about this reverence for God. And you can see that. Like here's a scripture about Jesus. Look in Isaiah chapter 11 at this passage of scripture. This is a prophecy about Jesus. If you had time, you could establish that. Hopefully ministers here understand this. I won't spend a lot of time on it. But this is Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1. And there shall come... Forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. So this is talking about Jesus, and it says that Jesus would have a fear of the Lord. You know that this isn't a dread. You know that this isn't terror. So it had nothing to do with some kind of a dread, but rather it was talking about awe and reverence. And also over in uh, Acts chapter 9, I believe it's verse 31, it talks about that the churches of the Lord were built up in the fear of the Lord. Is that the right terminology? Had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified in walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. So here's the church. The New Testament church operated in the fear of the Lord. So this isn't something negative. This isn't talking about terror and dread. This is talking about... an awe and reverence. Look at this passage over in Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16 in verse 6 says, By mercy 
and truth, iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. The fear of the Lord, an awe, a reverence for God that comes by recognizing His holiness and our relative unworthiness, this awe or reverence of God causes men to depart from evil. And you know, one of the reasons that I think we see the evil escalating is because people don't have this awe and reverence of God. They don't understand the justice, the holiness of God. We've got people today, and again, I don't hate these people, but I hate the sin, but we've got people having parades and promoting things that are abomination to God because there is no fear of God before them. Look at this uh, verse in Psalms chapter... 36 and verse 1, The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before their eyes. You know what? When you see people just out living in sin, it's because there is no fear of God. There is no reverence. People haven't been proclaiming the holiness of God and that we are accountable to God. I believe that one of the reasons that evolution is so popular today, which I'm not going to teach on evolution, but it's my opinion that it takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does creation. I mean, I could give a lot of statistics, but I've heard that if you had a, like the Boeing factory where they build planes, that if you had a bomb dropped in there and all of these parts were there, which that's quite a supposition to start with, you've already got something to start with, But if you dropped a bomb in a place with all of these parts, that the chances of a 747 jet coming out of that explosion and the parts coming together and everything fitting perfectly and all the rivets being done and the thing being painted and flying are about one billionth the chance of evolution taking place. And anybody who believes that you could drop a bomb in a plane plant and have a plane assembled out of it, man, I got a bridge I'd love to sell you. That just, that seems to me totally unreasonable. But you know why people believe in evolution? Because it makes them not accountable. They're able to justify their actions and it's an attempt to deal with the guilt and the condemnation that our own conscience puts upon every single person. We have this intuitive knowledge of right and wrong And it's an attempt to deal with that by saying there is no God or there are people who believe that God exists but that God couldn't punish people forever in eternity and things like this. And those are people who have never seen how terrible of a transgression we have had against God. And the the lack of a fear of God has caused our society to just literally go down the tubes. And there's people doing things. because. And brothers and sisters, maybe it's not the people sitting right here. Maybe it is. But it's because the church, the preachers, have not proclaimed the truth. And there is no fear of God. That's what causes people to do this. Again, Proverbs 16.6 says that it's, it's mercy that purges iniquity away, but it's the fear of God that causes man to depart from evil. The transgression of the wicked is shouting loud and clear that they don't have fear of God. You know, it was uh, up here in Columbine in 1999 when these two boys 
went in and killed 13 people in school and then turned the guns on themselves and killed themselves. And you know what? They thought that they escaped punishment because nobody had told them the truth. And there, there is not a common knowledge that hell exists. And people think that you, you die, you just cease to exist. And so it emboldens people. You know, I think about Mexico. I can guarantee you these people that are living lawless and doing the things that they're doing, it's people that have no fear of God on the inside of them. If they knew that there was an accountability coming, I can guarantee you, you would not see people just doing the things that they're doing in these gang wars that are going on. But they think that this life is all that there is and just... Fight and do everything, and if you get killed, what's the difference? It's over. I've actually seen surveys by Barna, and uh, they they survey Christian people on a lot of different issues. And did you know, I forget the exact percentage, but I think it's the majority of people who call themselves Christians believe that Satan is only a force. It's a concept. It's not a real person and that hell is not a real place. The majority of quote-unquote Christians do not believe in hell. They do not believe that there is punishment, that there is accountability, and therefore, you know what? It causes people to live unholy lives. Again, I've tried to make this very clear that God doesn't deal with us as believers based on our performance and based on our holiness. And that's absolutely true. But man, there is a performance-based relationship with God for those who do not accept Jesus and don't accept the, the uh, payment. There is a wage for sin. And we need to recognize this. And we need to realize that people that haven't accepted the Lord, there is a place called hell. You know, I didn't bring all my scriptures in here, but I have a printout on this, and there are 63 times in the Old Testament that the word hell is used, or grave, or sometimes the pit. That's the way it's used in the English. That's all translated from one Hebrew word, sheol, S-H-E-O-W-L, and it is a place that, re- that applied, uh, and again, if I had time, I'm not trying to make this a perfect expose on all of this, but I'll just give you the summarization of it. But that word was used 63 times in the Old Testament. Nearly every time that the word grave was used, it was talking about the godly dead. They would, be, they would go to the grave. Every time that the word uh, hell was used, or the pit, it was talking about the ungodly. I think that there was one exception to that that I found, but basically that's what it did. And there's many scriptures that talk about this place of Sheol or hell being in the center of the earth. And some of the scriptures I'll be using tonight show it's a place of torment, it's a place of heat, and it just so happens that the center of the earth, everything we know about it, it's molten lava and it's hot. And so here's my... Here's my condensed conclusions based on these things that I've studied is that I believe that hell is in the center of the earth in a place that the Hebrew calls Sheol and it was divided into two parts. I'm going to read here out of Luke chapter 16 and you can see this clearly that the rich man went to hell and yet he saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. There was a great gulf between them but it was in the same place. This place called Sheol was divided into two parts. And prior to Jesus coming, every person who died, again, death doesn't mean the end. 
ceasing to exist. It just means separation. Uh, James chapter 2 verse 26 says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So that shows you that at death, your body and spirit separate. You can put that together with many scriptures uh, like in Rome, uh, Revelation chapter 6 and chapter 7, he also talks about seeing the souls of those under the altar who are slain for the testimony of the Lord. So you put these together, your spirit and soul leave your body at death. You don't cease to exist, you just exit this body and they go to one of two places. In the Old Testament, they either went to hell, a place of punishment, or they went to Abraham's bosom. When Jesus died, Jesus led captivity captive. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about He descended first into the lower parts of the earth. There's many scriptures that talk about this place that your spirit and soul goes as being in the lower parts of the earth. He entered into the lower parts of the earth and He led captivity captive. And so He emptied the part of Sheol that was called Abraham's bosom and took that to what we call heaven. And now, all that's left in the center of the earth is where the ungodly dead spirit and soul goes. And they dwell in this place called hell. And then, some of these other scriptures we'll get into, it shows that death and hell... Matter of fact, I read that earlier in Revelation chapter 20, I believe verse 13, that death and hell gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, and then they were cast into the lake of fire... So hell is a place that exists right now. The ungodly dead go there. But when God comes, when Jesus comes back and there is the white throne judgment, then hell is going to cease to exist. He's going to do away with this physical earth. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation chapter 20. And he's going to take all of the people who used to dwell in hell and cast them into a place called the lake of fire where it says they will be tormented day and night forever. That pretty much does away with purgatory. That pretty much does away with any ultimate reconciliation or something because they will be tormented forever and ever and ever. And we aren't going to live in heaven forever. That's only until God creates the new heaven and the new earth and then he, there's going to be a new Jerusalem come down and we are going to live on a new earth in the new Jerusalem with God and we will exist forever on the earth, not in heaven forever. Amen? There is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. Amen? Absolutely. And I tell you, we need to understand what we've been redeemed from. Boy, that is very, very important, I believe. And again, I refer back, I think this is one of the reasons that I have appreciated what God has done in my life more than some people I deal with because I saw what I deserved. I saw my ungodliness and I know that I don't deserve a thing from God and it has made me appreciate the grace of God. If you don't understand that the wage of sin, the wages of sin is death, and not just the big sins, but every sin. James 2.10, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. If you don't understand that and you think, that, well, I'm really a pretty good person and that 
You know, I don't think God's upset with me. Well, then you won't fully appreciate what God has done. You will not honor and value your redemption because you don't understand the tremendous price that was paid. Sin had to be judged in a physical body. And so God had to become a man. Because you know what? If He would have uh, punished just one man, one man's life is only worth one other man's life. But since Jesus was God manifest in the flesh, His life was worth more than all of the human race and all of our sins from time past till time in eternity. And one drop of His blood was more than enough to pay for the sins of the entire human race. He was absolutely holy, absolutely pure. And He paid. He paid a tremendous price. And see, if you understand this, not only does it make you appreciate what God has done, but it also helps you to understand how a holy God can love you and still be holy and do it. Because He didn't just decide, oh, I'm going to quit being holy and I'll go ahead and accept these unholy people. No, He satisfied all of the demands of justice. He paid for all of our sins, paid more than our sins were worth. He paid more than double for our sins, Isaiah chapter 45. He has more than double paid for our sins. He is just now to look at us, and He doesn't just look on our physical body because there is still mistakes and sins. Our physical body hasn't been redeemed. Our soul isn't redeemed. But your spirit is brand new. If you are in Christ, you are a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. In your spirit, you're as holy, as pure, as righteous as Jesus is. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He made Him to be made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Your spirit has been born again and it is 100% righteous and holy. And John 4.24 says God is a spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in the truth. God isn't dealing with you based on your outer actions and based on your emotional state. He's dealing with you based on who you are in the spirit. And in the spirit, you're a brand new creation. You're righteous and holy. As Jesus is, so are you in this world. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. He that's joined unto the Lord is one spirit. 1 Corinthians six seventeen. You in your spirit are as pure and holy as Jesus is. And so holy, almighty God can look at you without any condemnation and without any judgment and without any punishment. Not because he just decided, oh, I'm not going to punish him anymore. No, he paid the price. He has paid it and he made you a brand new person and only... See, here's another advantage. If you understand this, it's only through the Spirit that we can access our relationship with God because in the flesh you do not deserve this relationship. Man, I could preach on that for days. Most people do not approach God in the Spirit. They approach it based on their flesh, how well they've been performing and doing this. That's all flesh-based. And your flesh is not good enough. It doesn't deserve the things of God. You See, if you understand this properly, it really opens up a lot of scriptures. Because you understand that in my flesh, that is, in my flesh, there is no good thing, is what Paul said in Romans chapter 7. 
And yet most people think, well, wait a minute, my flesh is pretty good. It's better than it's ever been. I'm living holier than I've ever been. Again, you don't understand that sin has a wage and it's death. And I mean, there is no in-between ground. It's not like he that murders another person has death, but he that just sins a little bit just gets a little bit of punishment. A little. I mean, there's just one punishment. Miss in any area and you die. And your flesh is constantly missing it. Your flesh is constantly short. I don't care if you're better than I am. I don't care if you're holier than I am. You do not deserve the goodness of God. And this will help you to understand that, man, I can only approach God through the cross, through what Jesus did, not through my goodness and through my own holiness. Amen? So look over in the 16th chapter of the book of Luke. And this is Jesus' teaching. And I believe Jesus had it right. I believe Jesus is accurate in what He represented. And there's people saying that hell's not a real place. Hell's just something we experience here. It's a metaphor. Man, Jesus here makes some very strong statements about hell. And if you believe that Jesus was the Son of God and that He spoke the truth, well then, I don't know how a person could read these things and not believe in hell. I have had some people say that this is only a parable. And you know, I don't know for sure if this is a parable or an actual account that Jesus is giving, but it really doesn't matter because Jesus would never use a parable to teach anything that wasn't true. It's like when He used the parable about the seed. And the kingdom of heaven is like a seed which a man cast in the ground. Every single thing that Jesus taught through that was accurate. A seed, you put it in the ground. If it doesn't penetrate the ground like that first time and it was on hard packed ground, well then the fowls of the air come and pick it up. That's true. That happens. And if it gets in stony ground, it'll begin to work, but it doesn't have root and so it'll die and wither away. That's accurate. And then it gets sown in place where there's thorns and briars and that'll choke the word. That's accurate. And then the good ground produced 30, 60, 100 fold. That's accurate. There wasn't a single inaccuracy. There was nothing he taught through that parable that wasn't right. So to me, this whole argument, some people have tried to say that Jesus was just using a parable. He would never use a parable to teach anything that wasn't right. And so to me, I'm not a great theologian. I'm pretty simple. If the Bible says it, I don't have to go into the Greek and Hebrew to believe it. Amen. So maybe I'm too simple, but I believe all of this. And so here's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 16 and in verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angel into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. You know, we're going to finish this teaching that Jesus gave, but let me just point out that, you know, if you back up, I didn't read this verse 
But um, it's right here in verse, in verse 15. He said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before man, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Well, this needs to be said because our Christians today are so plugged into the world through television, radio, internet, books, magazines, everything, movies, that you know what? We have let the world influence us. We've adopted a lot of their values. And I tell you, the things that the world esteems are an abomination in the sight of God. You know, I get on the internet, I have hundreds of pages of reports that I look at every day and I read them. But when I get on my mail, I see these headlines on the internet and I am just appalled. I'm shocked. I'm just, I don't have the words to say about the things that I see on there. How about they talk about somebody wore a sheer dress? They want you to click on it so you can see the pictures. So-and-so's got a baby bump. Brad and somebody else are angry at each other. And you know what? That's important to some people. I just look at that and think, this is going out to millions and millions and millions of people and they want to know there's pictures of somebody who went shopping and everybody wants to see the pictures. What kind of people look at that stuff? If you're one of them, don't raise your hand. But what kind of people look at this stuff? It is so trivial. It is nothing. And we put people on our magazine covers who are ungodly and immoral and an abomination in the sight of God. And that's who our world glorifies. I'm not against anybody. I pray for those people. I pray that they get changed. But you know what? I see all of these people that the world reverences because they can throw a ball or kick a ball or do something and they just they, they spend money and they want to read about these people. And I look at that and think, someday we're going to see things from God's standpoint. We're going to recognize that all of these things that are highly esteemed by men are an abomination in the sight of God. And you can see that right here in this parable because the rich man, no doubt, was probably people just nearly worshipped him when he walked down the street. I'm sure when he gave a party, everybody wanted to come to his party and get in on the guest list. I'm sure that he was reverenced. I'm sure that it is funeral. They probably had people stand up and testify and talk about all of the things that he did and how awesome he was and probably go through all of his awards and mention all of the things that he did. That's the way that it looks for men. But here's God's perspective. That the rich man died and was buried. He just rotted in the ground. They threw a dead corpse in the ground Nothing special said about this guy. He wasn't reverenced. From God's perspective, there wasn't anything special. The guy was dead and good deal. He was just taking up space. But the, but the beggar died and the angels came and met this beggar and escorted him into heaven. God honored this beggar. He honored a person that had no honor in the natural. 
but God honored him. You know, it's only what God honors that counts. And we honor people. I, you know, again, I don't have anything against any person. I hope Michael Jackson got saved. I mean, there's no indication of it in my book, but I, I, it'd thrill me if he's in heaven. I hope he got saved and stuff. But people just weep. And, oh, it's such a tragedy. What a great loss. I, I guarantee you, if he didn't know Jesus, his body is rotted. Worms have eaten it. And from God's standpoint, there's nothing special about that man. I guarantee you, God didn't shed a tear. We honor and esteem all of these people. I was over in England when Princess Di died. And you should have seen the way that they responded. And there was a Baptist pastor. Praise God for this Baptist pastor who stood up. But he had a young girl in one of his Sunday school classes say, did Princess Di go to heaven? And he said, it depends on whether she knew Jesus. If she didn't know Jesus, she went to hell. And that's what he said. And I saw the paper. I was there. And I mean in letters that big, three inches big, it says, Baptist pastor says Princess Di in hell. And I mean, they tried to get Parliament to meet and to punish him and to do something and people were so upset. But I can guarantee you that's exactly true. If she did not know Jesus, she went to hell. Somebody said, but she helped little kids in landmines and she gave money and she was beautiful and she was all of this. That's not what determines where you go. And some people think that this is offensive, but again, to me, it puts value on our salvation. That if you keep the whole law and yet offending one point, you become guilty of all. There's not a single person who has lived without sin, and therefore there is a wage to sin, and every single person is born headed for hell. And we have to receive the salvation that comes through Jesus, or that is our eternal destiny. And this is, this is powerful to me. That the rich man just died and was buried, rotted in the ground, his body. But Lazarus had angels come escort him into heaven. I can guarantee you at Lazarus' funeral, probably most people just threw him over to the side of the road and let the dogs eat him. Probably wasn't anything special for Lazarus in the natural, but angels escorted him into heaven. You know, we live here for such a short period of time. It's amazing how we put so much emphasis on all of these physical, natural things and want the acclaim of men and forget the acclaim of God. You know, if people were just aware of the things I've already said here tonight, you wouldn't find people doing the things that they do. You wouldn't find them having gay parades, bragging about what they're doing and and esteeming people and throwing money after all of these things and paying people you know, tens of millions of dollars for playing a game if our value systems were different. I'm preaching better than you're listening. And look at this in verse 23. It says, And in hell he lifted up his eyes. There is a place called hell. Like it or not, it's a result of sin. It says over in Matthew chapter 25 
about that, you know, there will be a time that when we, at the end of the world, that the dead will be raised and that we will all stand before the Lord and He'll separate the sheep from the goats. And it says that He will cast the goats into hell which was prepared for the devil and his angel. God never intended for people to be in hell. He created it for the devil and his angels. He never intended for us. And any person who goes to hell, it's like God has put a million roadblocks in, in between you and hell. You've got your own conscience. You've got people that will be speaking to you. God has been working on every single person. And I guarantee you, there's nobody who's going to fall into hell accidentally. And anytime you talk about this, people will say, well, what about the people in China or someplace that have never heard the gospel? How could a holy God cast them into hell? Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 is the answer to that. And it says that God has revealed Himself from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. That there is an intuitive knowledge on the inside of every person and it says that even His eternal power and Godhead, that's talking about Trinity, has been revealed to people. I can, I can show you in pagan religions before Christianity ever reached them that many pagan religions had a concept of a triune God. I was in Cancun, the Mayan God. There is a, uh, I forget how it was expressed, but it was a thunderbird and something else. Anyway, there was a trinity. You can go right there to Chichen Itza and see it. They got it carved in stone from back around the time of Christ or before. And they understood a trinity. When I was in Vietnam, there were three temples right outside of the place where I was stationed. And they were really old. They were falling down. And trees were growing out of them. There was just enough, you know, I never went up to them, but it looked like there was just enough space for a person to turn sideways and squeeze in between these three temples, about five stories tall, and uh, trees were growing out of them. The jungle was nearly taken over. I was a chaplain's assistant, and we asked one of the pastors in that area, and he said that those temples predated Christianity coming to Vietnam by 500 years. So 500 years before anybody brought the message of the gospel, they had temples that worshipped a God that manifested Himself in three parts. I'm not saying that they were true worshippers of God. They perverted it. Romans chapter 1 talks about that, that, that. They took this revelation and then they perverted it and began to worship and serve the Creator. I'm not saying that they were true believers, but it does show what Romans chapter 1 says, that even His eternal power and Godhead is known so that they are without excuse. There is not going to be anybody ever stand before God who says, I didn't know. That's a lie. You'll hear people today say, I'm an atheist. I'm an agnostic. I have no uh, conviction about anything. There is no God. That is not true. Take my word for it. When I was in Vietnam, I met many atheists who just defied God. But when the bombs dropped and the bullets flied, all of the atheists were going, God, help me. They cried and prayed to God. It is a mind game. You can sear your conscience and you can get to a place where you convince yourself there isn't a God, but I guarantee you every person on a heart level knows that there's a God. What's Romans 1? 18 through 20 says, and it is a lie for anybody to say that they do not believe there's a God. Either that or they are, have gone so far that they've seared their conscience and they're reprobate. 
that every person at one time has known that there is only one God and that they are not Him. Every person knows it. And since I saw that in Scripture, I've talked to many people who are atheists, and I've told them, I said, I just don't care what you say. I know. I know what you feel. I know why you won't get still and why you have to always have something on and going and doing something or you get bored and you start feeling bad. It's because when you get quiet, that little homing device on the inside starts beeping and going off and and drawing you towards God. That's on the inside of every person. And I have never talked to a person since, the Lord showed me that, that I wasn't able to penetrate their lies and deception. And they'd say, well, yes, you know, I really believe there is a God. So don't even argue with them on it. Somebody says, but they really believe this. I've got to tear down this thought. You know, just take the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and it'll still run them through whether they believe it's a sword or not. (laughs) Amen. They don't have to believe it's a sword for it to work. It'll, it'll bring conviction to them. Yeah. Amen. So, in hell, he lifted up his eyes. Look at this. He had eyes. This will give you an insight into some things. In hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torments. Torments here, it doesn't specify. It does say that he was thirsty. And he was tormented in the flame, so it implies that you can still have thirst. We assume that there will be hunger because Jesus talked about that we will eat in heaven, that we're going to eat the uh, fruit of the trees and the, the leaves are for the healing of the nation. Jesus ate broiled fish in his glorified body. So if we eat in heaven, well, then I assume that they have to eat in hell or at least they get thirsty. We know that for sure. And it says that he could feel the heat and the flames so he still had feeling in his body. You know, here again is just a summarization. I'm not going to take time to prove this to you, but I believe that your soul is basically just the same as your body. You can recognize the souls of people. They still look the same. You still have eyes. You still have fingers. He said he asked Lazarus to come dip his finger in water and cool his tongue. He had a tongue. He had feelings. He could feel heat. And so you know what? If he had all of those parts, well then you can assume that he probably had all of the other parts. I mean, it, I assume based on this that a uh, soul and spirit are basically like us. Many people, I've heard, I think it was Kenneth Copeland say that it's just like sticking your hand inside of a glove. That your hand is the real part of you, but you cover it in a glove. This body just fits over our soul and our spirit. And your soul basically fits right inside of this body and you still have eyes, ears, tongue, feeling, fingers, and things like this. Again, that's not a point I'll argue over, but it sure looks that way to me. So it says in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and said unto Abraham, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. So here's another thing about hell. Did you know that in hell, people will be able to see beyond hell? And it doesn't say that they can see what's happening here on earth, but they could certainly see what was happening in Abraham's bosom, which was a place of blessing and a place of comfort. I think that that will add to what hell is. The very fact that they will be able to see other people. They will be able to see 
what's going on in heaven. That's a sobering thought. And so he said in verse 24, he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember. Here's another part. Here's something else that will happen to people that are in hell. They can remember. I believe they'll remember every time that God knocked on their heart. Every time that God spoke to them. Every time that they had an opportunity to go a different direction and they chose wrong. You know, there's people today that in this life are tormented by memories of things that they've done wrong, mistakes that they've made. Think what it'll be like in hell to remember and you will know all things. Again, this is speaking about the believers over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It says that when that which is perfect is come, we will know all things even as also we are known. If, if the godly dead know all things, well then you can suspect that the ungodly dead will know all things. They will have a proper perspective. They will realize how that they just, you know, went after the famous, the beautiful, the talented, and put their whole life into sports and into something else and wasted their life. And they will have a perfect perspective. They'll remember all of these mistakes. Remember the time that the Lord tried to turn them from that. And so Abraham said, Remember, that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. So Abraham's bosom was a place of comfort. It was a place of blessing. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Now this says some other things that you know what? There is no such thing as a second chance. He was pleading for mercy and he says it can't happen. There is no such thing as limbo. There is no such thing as purgatory. There is no second chance. There is no ultimate reconciliation. Your eternal destiny is determined by the way you live and the choices you make specifically whether or not you make Jesus your personal Savior right here and now, and it cannot be altered after a person dies. Man, if people knew that, they'd never go out and kill somebody and then kill themselves thinking I uh, avoided punishment. They'd recognize it. Man, they they just left one hell and got into a real hell. They entered into eternal punishment. If people understood that, I guarantee you it would cause them to depart from evil. And then verse 27, Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. Now here's another thing about people in hell. Did you know what? They now know that they're wrong and they can still have compassion on other people. And he was thinking about his family. He was thinking about the people that were left behind. And in the next verse he says, Abraham said unto them, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. 
Man, that's a powerful statement. In other words, God isn't going to grant some kind of a supernatural special intervention to get people born again. It's the Word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. It says in 1 Peter 1.23, We are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed, by the Word of God which lives and abides forever. The only way you can get born again is by the seed. That word there is sperma or spora, but it comes from the Greek word sperma, which is talking about sperm. Just like a spore from a flower has to be planted for a seed to grow, just like a sperm has to be released from a man into a woman to conceive a child, you cannot be born again without the Word, the incorruptible seed. Miracles don't get people born again. You can't pray people into the kingdom. You have to sow the seed. Now you can water the seed by prayer and there's things that we can do to witness and stuff, but they have to have the Word. That's the only way a person can be born again. And he was praying that they would have something supernatural happen and he said they've got the Word of God. Let them hear the Word of God. But can you imagine the torment of being in hell, remembering how foolish you were, the mistakes that you made, having perfect recollection, understanding all things, thinking of your family and your friends that are headed to the same place and you want to do something and you can't do anything, they have the Word of God, that's going to be punishment. And you know what? It'll be forever. And this is just andeology. I don't know that I have a scripture to stand on for this. But I believe that hell is also going to be total isolation. Because again, death is separation. Separated from God and then you eventually separate from your body and then you are separated from heaven. And everything I understand about it, I believe it's going to be total isolation. In other words, you will not be able to get together with other people in hell and somehow or another soothe each other's conscience and somehow or another make it a little bit less by, you know, misery loves company and sharing your thing. I believe you'll be in absolute, total isolation. This man was in isolation. He could see other people, but there's no indication that there was anybody else around him. And there will be total isolation. It'll be a separation from all that's good. You know, we don't even have this perspective. We take so much for granted. The Bible says He makes His Son to rise on the just and on the unjust. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. And we take that for granted. But you know, there won't be anything good. There won't be a sunrise. There won't be a sunset. There won't be a breeze. There won't be rain. There won't be any good. There will be nothing good in hell. And I believe there will be total isolation. You know, when I had this experience with the Lord, March the 23rd, 1968, some people don't, under, they don't believe this because I'm so emotionless. I have to tell you when I get excited because I'm just always like this. I mean, I don't ever change, amen. And some people think I've never had any emotion. When I had this experience with the Lord, I mean for four and a half months, I was caught up in the presence of the Lord. I was overwhelmed. I was overdosing on the Lord 24 hours a day for four and a half months. I couldn't contain myself. And I had wild emotions and feelings and experiences and did a lot of things. But after four and a half months, that feeling 
wore off, and then I got drafted and sent to Vietnam. And in Vietnam, I panicked. And I spent nearly 13 months asking God to kill me, not because of Vietnam, but just because I'd lost that feeling and emotion. And I wanted this emotion back so much that I figured the only way I could ever get it was to die and go to heaven. So I was praying to die. Nearly died twice in one day over in Vietnam and I realized I really wasn't as excited about this as I thought I was. <laughs> and I just started studying the Word and that's where God began to change me. And He began to show me things like I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. And that's not something that comes and goes. It's there all of the time. I began to understand this spirit, soul, and body and that in my spirit I had this all of the time. But I... I didn't want to just have it in my spirit. I wanted to feel it. And I was begging and pleading with God about, I've got to feel this love and this joy. And um, I had this experience, which I haven't got an explanation for this the theologically. I'm just telling you what happened. You can figure it out. But I was begging God for this feeling and emotion and not just appreciating the fact that he had never leave me nor forsake me in the peace that I had. And so, anyway, for three days in Vietnam, I just woke up one morning and it was like God was gone. It was like there was no God. And the reason I'm bringing this up is to say, I think that this is going to be like hell. Um, I, don't, I don't have the words to describe that, but I mean, it wasn't like depression. It was absolute, stark terror. I was terrified. It was, um, there was, it was just like there was no God, like God had left me. And I know the Bible says He never leaves us nor forsakes us, so I don't believe that God left. But I do believe that here, here's what I believe it was. I was begging God for His presence and a feeling like what I had when I could feel Him. And I mean, I had goosebumps going up and down my spine 24 hours a day for months. And I was begging for that to come back. And I believe God just wanted to let me know what it would be like without Him. And I mean, He just turned off the spigot. And... Terror hit me. And I mean, for three days, I was absolutely panic-stricken. I had people, I was a chaplain's assistant, they'd come knock on the door and I was supposed to set up an appointment for them to come see the chaplain or whatever. And I mean, for three days, I didn't eat. I didn't talk to anybody. I actually I had people knock on the door and I would go into this little closet I made and put clothes over me and hide because I just... I was terrified. I couldn't stand to look at a person I thought everybody else could tell. And I prayed. I did everything I could. Oh, God, what happened? Get me back to normal. And after three days, I woke up kneeling beside my little army cot that I slept on. It was like 3 o'clock in the morning. And I was just praying. There wasn't anything special. There wasn't any bells and whistles. I didn't have a goosebump going up and down my spine. But you know what? I was back to normal. It was like peace again. And what I learned through that was that you know what? I'm never without God. I may be without some of the emotion, but man, I, I realized that God would never leave me nor forsake me. And I made a promise I would never again beg Him for a feeling or an emotion 
ever again. That man, I just appreciated the fact that I knew he would never leave me nor forsake me. And uh, that's been a long, long time. And I have never gotten over it. And I've never felt bad again. Man, I appreciate it. So my point in saying all of that, I think that what I experienced is a small taste of what hell is going to be like. Nothing good. No presence of God. No knowledge of God. No hope. And I can't imagine what that would be like. I, I experienced just a small taste of it for three days and I don't think it was anything like hell. Not near as bad. But it was terrible. I can't even imagine what it's going to be like. I can't even imagine. And some people think, well, it's just going to be for a brief time and then God's going to ultimately reconcile everybody to Himself. I guarantee if it was for one minute, I wouldn't want to do it. But the Scripture says that they'll be tormented forever and forever and forever from the presence of the Lord, which means that there will be no presence of God. There will be no awareness of God. There will be nothing good. And so anyway, I offer all of these things to say that this is what we deserved. And some people think, well, how could a person who's just, you know, done a few small things wrong, how could a just God punish them right alongside Hitler that killed millions of people? And I don't believe it's these individual sins that are going to send us to hell, but in John chapter 16, let me just read this verse to you and we'll quit with this. And when he has come, talking about the Holy Spirit, verse 8, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And then in the next three verses, he explained these three areas where the Holy Spirit would work. And he says, of sin... Because they believe not on me. Notice he said he will reprove the world of sin, not of sins. He will reprove the world of sin, the singular sin of not believing on Jesus. That's what it's all about. The sins of the whole world have been paid for. It is not your individual sins. It just comes down to have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if a person says, oh yeah, I believed on Jesus... And if it's not a genuine faith, then you know what? He may mention, well, then what about this homosexuality? But it's not homosexuality that's the big issue. It's this is an indication that you aren't trusting Jesus. You aren't following what he said. He made them Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. You're leaning to your own understanding. To the person who says, oh, I just trust you for everything and I believe on you. Well, then why do you get drunk? Why do you do dope? Why are you depending upon a pill instead of Jesus? He may point out an individual action, but it's not the action that's the problem. The action is just a symptom of the root issue, which is that you haven't trusted Jesus. You aren't leaning upon Him. And this is what the Holy Spirit convicts us of. So I say all of this to say this, that if that is the sin that the Holy Spirit convicts us of, and if we had this huge transgression against God, and we had this debt to be paid that was eternity in hell, tormented in the flame. And if that was what was going to happen, and Jesus paid that price for us, He said on the cross, Matthew and Mark, He, he said these things in Arabic, Eloi, Eloi, Laba, or however you say that, whatever it was. Being interpreted means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
a quotation from Psalms chapter 22. And the next verse tells you why God forsook him. It says, But thou art holy, O God, that inhabits the praises of Israel. The reason God forsook Jesus is because he became sin for us. And we were going to suffer separation. And Jesus suffered this total separation from God. He literally went to hell. And he paid for our sins. That is such a huge sacrifice that any person who rejects that or ignores it, that is infinitely worse than homosexuality, than murder, than genocide, than adultery. See, people who sit there and say, how could he punish somebody who just, you know, didn't go to church, didn't pay their tithes, wasn't born again, but they were a relatively moral person. How could he punish them? Because they're guilty of rejecting such a great salvation. And you don't have to totally reject it. Just ignore it. Man, ignoring Jesus is unforgivable. There is not a hell deep enough or an eternity long enough to punish a person who just chooses to say, well, Jesus isn't necessary for me. I'm a good person and I'm going to trust in myself. I don't need Jesus. I guarantee you, if you look at it from that standpoint, and the one sin that the Holy Spirit convicts us of is the sin of not believing on Jesus, then you know what? All of us will be separated from God. And it doesn't matter if you're a mass murderer or a moral sinner. Who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? Amen. There, You will suffer in hell. Praise God. And so some people think, well, this is kind of a downer message. Man, to me, to me, this is awesome. To think, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and bearing my sins. And thank you. And you know what this does? This lays a foundation. If people really understood what I've talked about tonight, they would quit promoting self-righteousness. And they would quit saying that, well, you've got to be holy, and if you do something wrong, God won't answer your prayer. People who preach that do not fully understand the price that was paid, and they think that somehow or another we can add to or improve upon what Jesus did. I tell you, they don't understand that our debt was bigger than what we could pay. And so Jesus paid it all. He didn't pay a portion and we have to make up the difference. Boy, this, this to me really makes me appreciate what God did for me. It makes me so thankful. And it is not inconsistent with grace. Grace didn't change the rules. It didn't throw out the rules. It satisfied every one of the rules. And it paid the price. And now we get what we don't deserve. We get what Jesus deserved because the price was paid and all of our sin was placed on Him and all of His righteousness was placed upon us. And I am righteous through Jesus. Amen. And so to me, this is encouraging. I hope that uh, this encourages you. But you know what? We need to be preaching on this. And the world, even the people that aren't born again, if the church was standing and boldly proclaiming these things, I think that a fear of God would cause men to depart from evil, and it would make a difference. Amen? And today, we've lost that. Even in the church, the majority of Christians don't believe in a literal hell. And if the majority of Christians don't, you know that the majority of unbelievers don't. And that's the reason that we see ungodliness 
just going rampant today because of all of those things. I just now looked at my watch. I'm sorry, but I had some things to say. So, uh, <laughs> praise God, I'll quit.